How many of you really can't stand it when a pastor is preaching a sermon and he uses a movie as an illustration and he doesn't even give a spoiler alert and it's like a new movie out and he tells you the ending? I mean, what's up with that? By the way, sorry. <laughs> you know, I'm entitling the message this morning, Spoiler Alert. Okay, and no, I'm not, I've not seen some recent movie I'm going to tell you about, no. But last week was a spoiler alert. This week, I'm going to continue on that same vein. But I believe even as the angels, when Jesus was born, Luke 2, began to declare this coming Christ, born in Bethlehem to save the world from their sins, the, the people still didn't get it. And it was kind of like a spoiler alert. Something really awesome is about to happen. No eye is seen, no ear is heard, no mind is conceived. But here's what's going to happen. This baby will rescue his people from their sins. They, they, they just didn't get it. And, of course, when Christ died on the cross, salvation was brought to this earth. What greater news, the gospel... Could we have, church? And so what I'm doing, and I did it last week, I'm going to do it again this week, but I want to tell you some more good news because I believe that when, when we truly trust in Scripture, when there is good news, it is something for us to live for, all right? And when we have a positive outlook of the, the kingdom of God, then it changes our attitude and it changes our actions. Now, truly, in our day, many in Jesus' church are not excited about the gospel. They're, they're not. They're not excited about worship. They're not excited about how Christ has changed them. And, and I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just been too many years. We, we call them seasoned saints, you know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sometimes we are, we've been in the kingdom for so long, for many it becomes dry and weary. And I would suggest that maybe it's because we have learned how to live in our own strength and we have forgotten the power of God. I mean, this is a tragedy and, and we see it everywhere in Jesus' church. May, may that never be in our church or in our lives, but that the gospel would always be fresh. The gospel would always be good news to us. But what is good news as well is the fact that as, and by the way, when, when we're not excited about the gospel, it truly impacts our attitude and our actions. When we're living through life and, and we truly don't understand that all things work together for our good, for those who love God, how do you live? If you didn't know that truth, i tell you how I lived before I discovered that truth and it wasn't good. And, and when we grasp truth, it truly changes our attitudes and our actions. And I, last week and now this week, we're talking about the, the, the extent of the power of the gospel and the extent of Jesus's kingdom. And, and in our day, growing more and more is a prevailing attitude that things are only gonna get worse and worse, so brace yourselves. And this negative attitude towards the kingdom of God that we're like holding on. You ever see that little kitty that's hanging from the branch and it says, hang on, baby, Friday's coming? That's the church. We're kind of just hanging on Jesus, please come and take me. And, and I'm, well, that is not what I read in the Bible. 
And we're going to look at this again today. And, and I want us to really allow the Spirit of God to challenge us. How is this truth of the extent of God's kingdom? This is the heart of God, the extent of his kingdom throughout this earth. How is that going to affect your attitude and your actions? How are you going to live for him in view of this? Matthew 13. I'm just going to let you know, and we're going to see this played out, but <coughs> excuse me, the parable of the four soils speaks of the seed that is planted in the four soils. And in the fourth soil that Jesus talks about, that's the good soil. It's cultivated, no rocks, thorns, etc. It's not packed down, cultivated well, and it receives the word and it bears much fruit, 30, 60, 100 fold of fruit. That seed is the seed of the gospel. We now move on to talk about the good seed in this parable. And if you could bring Matthew 13 up, starting with verse 24, the good seed in this parable is different. And we're going to see the explanation that we're going to get to, but I'm letting you know up front so that you can be prepared. But the good seed is not the gospel. It is the impact of the gospel in the fourth soil and the good seed, Jesus says, are the sons of the kingdom. So it's different than in the parable of the four soils. The good seed represents the sons of the those who have received the truth and have been born again. So verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed by, excuse me, in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered. Because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters. First, collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then, gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. Skipping down to verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man, so that's Jesus. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will, grow them, they will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, in this parable, we see that the good seed represents the sons of the kingdom. Jesus 
has scattered this good seed throughout his field. The farmer has sown this throughout his field. Jesus is that farmer who has scattered the good seed. Now understand again, this is not just merely the gospel. This this good seed represents those who have actually responded to the gospel. So my question to you is, as a farmer sows his field, how does he do this? This would be in the back of everyone's mind while they're listening to Jesus, by the way. How does a farmer sow his field? Does he take a handful of seed seed, and just throw it over in one direction, turn 90 degrees or so, take another handful, throw it in that direction, and just kind of do that kind of haphazardly? Or, and by the way, you know that's not the way he does it, because when the seed germinates and grows, you don't see little patches here and there. You see that the seed has been sown everywhere. Everywhere. From one end of the field to the other, north and south, east and west, it fills up the field. Again, he doesn't just throw scatter seed over here and over there, but it's everywhere from one side of the field to the other. And this field, Jesus said, represents the world. So here is my question to us, as Jesus is sharing this parable, now with us as we're reading it, to what extent do the sons of the kingdom fill the field, which is the world? Is it little pockets here and there, or is it everywhere? This is the nature of this parable. It's an agrarian parable. That is not, farmers do not sow the seed here and there. It is everywhere. But in addition to this, apparently the neighbor who, or excuse me, the enemy who is Satan, has cast other types of seed, and they are the weeds. Now, if we could put the picture up here, it is a contrast. On the left-hand side, you see in this picture wheat, and on the other side, you see at least what this is labeled as tares. That's the King James Version, or in your version, it might say weeds. Technically, it's zizania. And zizania in the Greek, (coughs) when literally translated, means darnell. Now, the reason why the NIV doesn't call it Darnell is because how many of it have you have ever heard of Darnell? Like, maybe none of you or a few of you. It's like, well, is that even an English word? What is Darnell? And most of you won't know, so the NIV and most translations just say weeds. But Darnell is a very particular, or the Greek Zizania is a very particular type of weed. And as you can see here, it looks almost identical to wheat. Now, here is the thing. It actually does look identical to wheat, the Darnell does, as it grows until at a certain stage when the head opens up. Now here, the heads of the wheat and the Darnell have opened up. And you can actually see the difference. On the left, you can see that the seeds of the wheat go the entire stem, or that however long that is, this, the wheat seeds go continuously, that is not the case for the Darnell. It comes in pack, you know, little pockets where the 
the stem kind of opens up, much like in a corn, would, the stalk would open up and produce a, an ear of corn. And so instead of an ear of corn, of course, it produces like maybe eight to a dozen seeds of darnel. And it's throughout that. So when the head of either the wheat or the darnel opens up, then you see the difference. Then you can tell this is, this is not wheat, this is a weed. And so the, the helpers to the farmer ask the farmer who represents Jesus, do you want us to just pull up all of these weeds, all of this darnel? And Jesus' answer to his angels is no. No, let them grow. And at the end of the age, that's when everything will be made plain. And the darnel will be bound up they will be cast into the fire, and the wheat will be gathered into the barn. Now, can I say this? There is this growing teaching, I'm only going to mention this, but a growing teaching in our day by those who profess to be evangelical that hell is only a concept and not a reality, that hell is not a place of fire and torment. My goodness, how could a loving God ever do that? And so they, in essence, seek to erase hell. And they would defend their view by saying, when Jesus spoke of hell, he always did so in the context of a parable. I mean, I say, number one, that's not the case. But number two, look at the explanation that you have there. The purpose of Jesus' explanation of this parable is to tell us that this symbol represents this reality. The fire in the parable that burns up the weeds represents what reality? The fiery furnace, which is hell. The, no parabolic language in that. It's explained. It's the reality, not the symbol, and it's a fiery furnace. Now, my point, though, is this. So I'm, hell is real. It truly is. Whether we can fully wrap our minds around it or not, God in his love has created this thing called heaven and this thing called hell. And they are so very real. But as we look back at this parable, we see Jesus is trying to communicate this powerful message of the fact that his field, the world, will be filled with the sons of the kingdom. You understand he also means daughters of the kingdom, right? And it is not here and there. And so I want to ask you, there is something in our world today that missionaries call the 1040 window. You're familiar with that. And the 1040 window, and it's so 30 degrees from 10 to 40, um, there is a pocket generally when you look across uh, the Middle East and Asia and Africa, what you see is very few Christians. Mostly, I would say it is Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu. And the percentage of Christians inside the 1040 window is very limited. It would be as if someone took a plow through Jesus' parable here in his field and plowed up this huge swath and just destroyed it, or that all that was there would be the Darnell. That is not what we see here. But we see the wheat 
planted in his field from end to end. So I'm going to tell you that Jesus, the implications of this parable are such that the 1040 window that is predominated by, that is dominated by the teachings of Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and animism, that those will give place to Christianity and that more and more Christians will be, will be living in these areas such that the sons of the kingdom will fill the 1040 window. This is the picture that Jesus is giving us. The, the wheat is everywhere. It's not just in pockets here and there, everywhere. Now, Jesus gives us two other parables following this, and I want us to see one more in verse 33. In this parable, Jesus, he, he talks about yeast. Now, even as Jesus used yeast in other parables or situations, he referred to the yeast as like the Pharisee's hypocrisy, bad teaching. He does not do that here. It, Jesus can use good seed to mean one thing and another in the very next parable. He can choose to use yeast the same way, different ways. And you're going to see that here in verse 33. Yeast is very positive. It says, he told them still another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. The yeast would be, just as in the first parable, it is the impact of the gospel and how it transforms the person. And this transformation doesn't just happen to a little bit of the dough over here and a little bit of the dough over there. And if you've ever made dough, you want to make sure that that yeast is throughout the dough because your goal is to have the entire batch of dough leavened and be able to expand, right? And that is the case here. And his clear implication here that he's trying to demonstrate to them is twofold. Number one, the power of the gospel transforms people, but his promise is this, it will transform this world. And so even as the field represented the world, so here the batch of dough represents the world, and the gospel of his kingdom will expand throughout this world and will truly transform it. It will transform societies. Now, several months ago, um, maybe even over a year ago, I'm trying to remember, I showed or had a, a clip from a video called Transformations in which the gospel had truly transformed entire towns and cities. Um, and and, and it's truly amazing in the testimonies of people in that area. And there's numerous things that happened and Christians, scholars, uh, pastors have studied this topic of revival. And God, what is it that has happened in these societies and in past revivals in Wales and in the first and second great awakening and such? And what actually happened? Because whatever happened then, whatever you did in the church, that's what we need to see today in Jesus' church. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. So here is my question. How will this, we've been talking about how will this happen? Last week we looked at this concept of nations, all nations, as Aetu says, streaming 
to the Mount of God. We're going to get to that in just a bit here. How is it that God is going to transform nations? He will do this. Remember the Great Commission, more literally translated, is, is not going make disciples of all nations, but rather going make all nations disciples. See, this is nations. Nations is on the heart of God. It's not just a few people here and there. God allowed nations in Genesis 11 for a reason. And it is in the confines of a nation that God does an unusual work. God has a purpose for nations when you study the concept of nations, Old and New Testament. We even see the concept of nations in Revelation. And in his divine purpose, he says to us, make it your goal, your ambition to reach nations. Now, we live in America right now. God may call some of you to other nations. And I'm going to challenge you that should God do that, whether as a businessman or a missionary, pastor, church planter, whatever it is, make it your ambition to see the gospel take root throughout that culture and that God would win that nation. Not just those around you, but that nation. So my question is, how is God going to do this? Because there are implications then for how that challenges us to live for him. So what I'd like you to do is turn to Psalm 2 for, for a moment. We're going to camp out there. And I want us to see something there. This is what they call a messianic psalm. <laughs> Excuse me, this cold that's been going around is trying to, my body's trying to get rid of it and has been for about three weeks and not doing a real successful job. But in Psalm 2, we see a messianic psalm in which David himself is spoken of as this appointed one, this chosen one, the anointed one. And he says, today I've become your father. So he is the son. He is a king. But I think every theologian recognizes it is this is more than just about David. It's actually the, the first few verses are quoted in Acts, four, in, in Acts chapter 4. And we are told that they go back to the cross. Of how Herod and Pilate and other rulers, the Jewish rulers, conspired against Jesus and had him killed. I want us to look, though, at verses 8 to the end of the chapter with this question. Okay, if the gospel, and not just the gospel, but the transforming work of the gospel, therefore the, the kingdom of God expands to all four corners of the earth, how does God win nations? How is he going to do this? And we're going to see a principle here that I believe God wants us to see played out in America and in your daily lives. So verse eight, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. So in view of that, he says, therefore you kings be wise, be warned you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. It's a way of paying homage and respect to a king. Kiss the son. 
who's the king, lest he be angry with you and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I'm going to use a term here in answering this question, how will God do this in reaching nations? I'm going to use this term, redemptive judgment. I believe we see that in verse 9 where he says that this Messiah will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. You, as you see this verse quoted elsewhere in the New Testament, it is the sense of rendering decisions or giving judgment. By the breath of his mouth, Jesus brings judgment. God we see this in, in Isaiah 11 even, where he is, uh, by, by the words of his mouth, he brings judgment upon peoples. Now, this is a concept, redemptive judgment, that I, I want us to see in a very positive light. Verse 9 is actually a positive thing. God, and you can see this in history, God has actually brought judgment upon nations, and some nations have responded well, and some nations have not. But the purpose of God bringing judgment to nations is to humble them. And in humbling these nations, his goal then is that they look to him that they find their frailty and their weakness, and they discover this, and they realize that I, I need something more secure in this life, some greater hope than in my nation or in man, and we must look to God. And we're going to actually see that as we turn to Isaiah 2. But here we see this concept that I'm going to call redemptive judgment. How is it that God, that Jesus is going to inherit the nations and rule over the ends of the earth as his possession? Now the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You may have heard that passage in Psalms before. I am not just talking about God being creator and king over everything because many of his subjects, the nations today, are in rebellion against this king. I am talking about here the nations being in subjection and the nations coming under his rule and the nations embracing the gospel of the kingdom. And, he, and, and so to do this, he will rule them with an iron scepter. The nations that are in rebellion right now, I mean, last week I talked about Iran, Iraq, and Afghanistan. I'll tell you what, America is quickly coming to that place where God, in order to rescue America, listen to this, by his grace will bring judgment upon this nation. And the reason why he's going to do this is because of redemptive judgment. God's purpose is to, is to uh, bring judgment and discipline so that they will be humbled and look again to God. Now, turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 2. Excuse me, I'm, I'm sorry, before we do that. As you look at verse 10, he says, therefore. In view of this concept of Jesus' redemptive judgment, therefore, he says, kings, be wise, be warned, serve the Lord, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, a, a, a demonstration of honor and respect, homage to him. I am your subject. That's what the subjects do to a king. They kneel down, 
and they kiss his ring or kiss his hand or however they are demonstrating, I am your servant, I am your subject. Kiss the son. Because if you don't, if you don't humble yourself before this God, his judgment will be thorough and you will not recover. And we have seen nations destroyed, obliterated. Prophecies in the Old Testament, by the Old Testament prophets of nations not responding to God's judgment and he completely wiped them out. But God does this and he humbles nations. And their response needs to be, as Psalms 2 says, serve him, rejoice, pay homage to him. Now, let's go ahead and look at Isaiah 2 before we step into the implications that all of this has in our lives today. I did mention in the first four verses of Isaiah 2, where he says, in the last days, and we looked at this last week, in the last days, and this is not up here. Oh, it is. Okay. It is. So in the last days, he says, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. That is, God's temple, which represents his presence, will be located on this mountain, this holy mountain, which is generally called Zion, sometimes Jerusalem, God's holy mountain. That is where the presence of God is. And this is what it says. It will be raised above the hills. Now, again, I truly do not believe that this is going to happen in some future age This is something that will happen in our age, in this church age, even in the last days. And scripturally, we are in the last days, by the way, from the cross and resurrection to his second coming. This New Testament constantly calls that the last days. We are in the last days. And somewhere in those last days, in the last days, we will see this happen. It's not some future age. And the only reason why some theologians say it's some future age is because, this, because it's symbolic and they want this to be literal as if Jerusalem is going to become the hub, hub of Christianity. And I assure you it will not. It doesn't need to be. As we move into the gospel era and the growth of the kingdom, Jerusalem has, has no place in that except now the birthplace of Christianity. And as we discovered for the first decade of maybe 15 years, the church was simply comprised of Jews, in which the New Testament calls them the remnant. And now, as we look at this, and forgive me for not spending more time, but to, to demonstrate this holy mountain is the people of God. And it's only in the people of God that God's presence dwells. And that's why he talks about his temple, the sanctuary, the, the presence of God in his people, the church. And God is going to lift up his church. He is going to lift you up as his people, far above all other peoples. The others will look at the church and they will conclude they are a blessed people. There is something about them that I need. 
And we saw this, or you can see this in the book of Acts, in which they, they as, as the Christians began to serve. And Acts 6, even it says that, that, that as they served the widows, the priests whose job it was to care for the widows in the Old Testament, they were so impacted by how the Christians were transformed. It says in, that, in verse 7, it says, so the, so the word of God spread and many priests became obedient to the faith. Now, many people have looked at the book of Acts and they have said, the book of Acts is just so unusual. That is what we're going to call the revival of God in the early church. How unfortunate it doesn't happen anymore. Wow. I would venture to say if it's not happening anymore, it is certainly, certainly not by God's decision in this, but it's because the church has somehow failed in, in allowing God to live in them and through them. And we're going to see that in a moment. And so here we see in this verse, God's heart is to lift up the church so that when the world looks on, what is happening with them? You see, that was the purpose of God choosing Israel. God wanted to raise up Israel so that all the world would be able to see all the awesome blessings and favor and miracles even that God did for Israel. And all the nations would say, wow, that's what I want. But Israel was in constant rebellion and constantly God was, const God was needing to regularly discipline them. And, and, and they failed. And now Isaiah is saying, but wait. A day is coming, and in the last days, he is going to so move in his church, not just in the book of Acts church, but his heart is throughout history. And, and honestly, in the last few centuries, we've seen little of it, but we are seeing it more and more and more. We are seeing many Jews coming into the faith, even in this generation, many Gentiles. We're seeing miracles happening in, in, in nations that are either atheistic or so opposed to Christianity like in Islamic nations. God is doing miracles. God is having people who are set against Christ, having dreams of Jesus and waking up and within a short while being converted. God is doing the stuff we read about in Acts today. And I'm going to tell you that this time for God to lift up the church as the highest, as an exalted hill in all the earth, he is doing it in our day. And I'm saying he is going to do this to draw, as it says, all nations will stream to it. All nations will stream into this church. Now, we know this is not literal because all nations cannot fit on top of, of Mount Sinai, or excuse me, Mount Zion. They, they can't. It is certainly talking about the church. Now, as we look further in Isaiah chapter 2, we discover how he does this. You might see there at, from verse 6 on, you might, mine, mine has a heading, it's called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord simply means God's judgment. Now, as we move into the New Testament, that phrase, the day of the Lord, is strictly that time when Christ comes, brings, he, he resurrects, he wipes out the uh, man of lawlessness, he brings judgment, creates the new heavens and the earth, 
And 2 Peter chapter 3 is all about that. And other chapters, of course, in the Bible. But that's the day of the Lord. And this day is simply referring to that time, those times of God's judgment in which, in the Old Testament, that phrase, the day of the Lord, may mean several times in which God visits his people or nations with judgment for a purpose I'm going to call redemptive judgment. But in the New Testament, you're hearing me, that phrase is strictly used for that day in which Christ returns and brings judgment. Here we see in verse, for example, verse 11, the eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. And in verse 19, men will flee to caves in the rocks and to holes in the ground from the dread of the Lord and the, the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. And I'm going to suggest to you that this concept of redemptive judgment is that the phrase shaking the earth represents that God is shaking these nations. And he does that by, as he says, bringing judgment upon them. And people are filled with fear. God is doing something in their nation. And it says in verse 20, in that day, men will throw away as men will throw away to the rodents and bats their idols of silver and idols of gold, which they made to worship. They will flee to caverns in the rocks and to the overhanging crags from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. And he concludes in verse 22, stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils. Of what account is he? But let me just say this. How is it that Jesus' rule will extend from sea to sea? How is it that he will inherit the nations so that they will be his possession? How is it that all nations will eventually stream into Jesus' church? Redemptive judgment. And he will do this to humble nations, whether it's economically or war or plague or some other way he will humble people so that when they are humbled they will cry out to him i would venture to say that in our day the greatest god in this world is man himself we worship man we got it god we don't need you god is not going to tell me what to do the, oh, the Bible, oh, the Bible's a nice book. Yeah, you know, love your neighbors yourself. That, that's a really good idea. But I am not going to give my life to this, even though that is what Jesus demanded. And man constantly relies upon himself. Man has the answer in science. Man has the answer in philosophy. Man has the answer in politics. Man has the answer to every ill that faces this world. Just give us enough time, we'll figure it out. And man is at the center of this world. And Isaiah the prophet says, stop trusting in man. 
Because if you don't, he will so humble you. And if when humbled, you still refuse to obey him, he will wipe out nations. And we have seen this historically. He has wiped out nations that have rejected his judgment, that have rejected his call, trying to get their attention. Even though the proud have been humbled, they have refused to follow the creator. Let me give you a few examples. In World War II, Japan was utterly decimated and brought to their knees. With the two atomic bombs and what Russia was doing, what America was doing and all of this, they were truly, truly humbled. And they surrendered. And the Japanese, that is like, for them, that was total humiliation. You do not surrender. You take your life if you have to, but you do not surrender. And, and they were broken to the point, if we don't surrender, we will lose everything and everyone. And so they did. They surrendered. People told the church, the nation of Japan, which is an animistic nation, you need to go into Japan with the gospel. And very few responded. Very few. The window of opportunity in Japan's humbling was a short window. That window closed. And today, it remains an animistic nation. Opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Several years later, the Korean War breaks out. Korea is humbled. They were the, the political leaders told the, the, the missionaries, the church, Korea has been humbled. You need to send your missionaries in there and you need to proclaim the gospel. They are ripe. This time, the church woke up and said, got it. They did it. They sent missionaries in there and they planted churches. Korea quickly began to respond to the gospel and in unprecedented numbers. And in Korea, you have churches that were pressing 700,000 to a million members. That was unheard of when in the days I was growing up. Unheard of. No other church was even close. May I just say now that we are in a day in which we are beginning to see churches growing that big. Now, I, I am not saying that it's God's heart's desire for every church to grow to be one million. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that these churches that were once small, that where there were no churches, they began to explode. Nationals took over those churches. Missionaries did a good job there. And when they took over the churches and when pastors were being trained, seminaries in Korea, the church began to just explode. Why? Because God had humbled Korea and people, missionaries, were responding to this call to proclaim the gospel there and they responded. And Korea has experienced not just the gospel but the power of God in their midst. May I be so bold as to say Acts-type revivals, miracles, Salvation's unprecedented, extraordinary miracles happened. <laughs> Let me fast forward to 
early 1980s. Argentina um, wanted to set the Falkland Islands free. To do that, they declared war against various circumstances surrounding it. I'll skip, but they declared war against England and, and Britain, and, and Britain said, no, these are our islands, and, and there was war in the Falkland Islands in the early 80s. And Argentina, even though the Falkland Islands are just off the coast of Argentina, and you would fully anticipate Argentina winning this war, they did not. And as a nation, they stepped into this big-chested, ready-to-deal Britain with a blow and, and set the islands free, but they lost. And they were, they were humbled, tremendously humbled as a people. And they have written books on what happened as a result of this that immediately followed. There was an air within Argentina of humiliation. And the church that existed in Argentina said, now is the time. Pastors started uniting. They began to realize that the gospel goes beyond denominational boundaries. As a matter of fact, I, I, I've actually heard some people say that they are so totally opposed to denominations that they are of the devil. I don't believe that. Though we as a church are not a part of a denomination, but a part of a network of churches that are loosely held together. I, I don't have a problem with denominations because here's what I've discovered. Yes, denominations can cause us to separate ourselves in pride and arrogance, thinking we've got the truth, we are better than you, and this can happen. But what God is calling us to do, and we will find this whether we're a part of a denomination or not, we view scriptural passages differently. Someone may hold to this millennial view and someone to this view. Someone may embrace this type of baptism and others this type. Some may say, you know, we believe in this type of church government. Others say this type of church government. Some would say, no, we believe in all of the gifts moving uh, and, and the spirit moving in our, just like we saw in the New Testament. And others would say, well, I'm not quite so sure about that. And they place limitations on God. However these scripture passages are used, the gospel is what unites us. And here is the powerful thing. When we are able to look beyond our differences, just like as a church we had an opportunity to do with Sanford 2015, and some of you were, were attended the uh, Sanford 20, they called it something different this year, just the past few weeks ago, Sunlight or sun, Sunfast, there we go. Lightfast, Lightfast, there we go. And... It, Looking beyond these denominational boundaries or uh, non-denominational boundaries, you understand what I mean? Differences in beliefs, but we believed in the one true king, Jesus Christ, who came to die on the cross, set us free, and by his resurrection, birthed new life in us, and that's why we're living the way we are today, loving one another and reaching the lost with the gospel. And when we all agreed on this, we looked beyond the differences. And we embraced each other as brother and sister in Christ. See, that is a greater testimony than preaching against denominations. That is the ability to see men united in faith and knowledge of the Son of God, which in, in Ephesians 4 does not mean we all have to agree on, the, uh, agree on the same exact doctrinal creed. The gospel, yes, but that's it. The greatest demonstration of love is for me to be able to say, you know what, I disagree and perhaps even strongly on where you stand on this 
understanding, but you know what? You're my brother and sister in Christ, and I'm going to be spending eternity with you, which means like forever and ever. And so the Argentina recognized this. They, had, they, they actually had foot-washing ceremonies amongst pastors that were at odds with one another, asking for forgiveness, praying for those that they actually preached against from the pulpit. And God began to break down these barriers so there was unity amongst the pastors. Then they began to hold large gatherings of, of members of the church, church, many churches gathering together, and hundreds of thousands gathering in, in soccer stadiums, and, and just unified in prayer, some all-night prayer gatherings, just there in a soccer stadium, humbled before God, crying out to God, as a nation we've been humbled, and we need to see your gospel come and rescue this nation. Let me tell you what happened. There was such a revival that over three million people came to Christ. The prisons, they didn't just hire chaplains, the inmates became chaplains. The majority, in some of the prisons, the majority of them became Christians. And those prisons, upwards of 1,500 to 2,000 members, they started a church. And, and, and God did incredibly unprecedented things in Argentina. And I'm going to suggest to you that when a nation is humbled, when a people are humbled and they respond then to the gospel, see, this is part of God's purpose in bringing nations to himself. And in America, we've seen pockets of revival. And that's pretty much it. My prayer is that God would start a revival and would encompass the entire nation. Not pockets here, then up Brownsville and some others here and there. And so, no, the entire nation. And that is what our hearts cry. So how then do we respond? Obviously, I'm giving you some hints here, but I believe that God, God wants to live so dynamically in and through his church that as we his people humble ourselves and refuse, as Isaiah 2 says, refuse to trust in man, but are utterly dependent upon God in every facet of your life. Church, every facet, every facet, facing finances, facing relationships, facing your home, in, in, in every area of your life, how you deal with employees, how you relate with your boss, every area in politics, in education, everywhere, when we humble ourselves and fully rely upon God and we allow him now to step in because we're saying, God, I can't, but I know you can. And when we invite him into these situations, God wants to show off. God wants to reveal his glory to such a degree that as we read in his day, he wants to lift, he wants to raise up his church and be able to declare to the world, these are my people. And when God is doing that, the promise is that's when the nations will wake up and say, wait a second, what is going on here? And they will stream into the church. This is the plan of God. This is his redemptive judgment. This is what he does to humble nations, to win them and bring them to himself. And this is what we can do. When you go about your daily life, you may be constantly looking for opportunities to share the gospel. 
And I commend you for that. Many times, though, people are not open to the gospel. America has quickly become what they call a post-Christian nation. That means basically, please talk to the hand, okay? They're, they're closed. They don't want to hear it. It's about religion. Religion divides. What about, you know, the crusade? You know, they come up with the strangest arguments for why they don't want to listen to the gospel. And I've heard that one before. Well, what about the crusades, right? It's like, well, someone just needs a history lesson. The truth is that God is wanting us to, he, he's wanting to give us, he's wanting to give each of you stories of his grace in which you found yourself, I, I've got to trust God in this situation. I have to. You know, Nicole just a few months ago was saying, well, I, I don't know what to do, guys. I'm at the end of my rope here and I, I feel like I'm in the center of God's will, but he's not showing up. And we prayed and God did some really cool things in blessing her and opening doors and going to need to continue to open doors. But you see, God is wanting Nicole and each of us to come to this point where, what else am I going to do? I've, I've got to trust in him. I've done everything I can, and that's it. I'm not going to get angry with God. I'm going to be humble before God, and I'm going to trust him. God, come through in this. I can't do it, but I know you can. And when you do that, when that is your attitude, everywhere you go in life, you are opening the door for God to be welcomed into your situation. And I'm going to tell you this. He won't just step in. He will rush in. Because that he wants to, I, I call this the drama of grace. Your life is a played out story, if you will, of God's opportunities to demonstrate his grace. And yet, you know, wait a second. No, God, I think I've got one more trick up my sleeve and I'm going to try that. And we're constantly keeping God at bay. And God is saying, no, would you simply be humbled right now? And can you trust me to step in and turn things all around? Now, I'm going to warn you, it's going to be a little bit of painful right here and a little bit of painful here but if you can trust me to get you through this you are going to step back and say oh god thank you i am utterly amazed at what you did now when god builds these stories in you he wants you to tell people about it he wants you to when, when, when i'm in a business setting it is really awkward and hard to suddenly transition into the gospel it, it's hard You've got business leaders talking about religion is difficult, but here's what they will listen to. Well, here's what happened in my life. Here's what happened to my daughter. Let me tell you how God stepped in. We didn't know what to do. All odds totally against us. And we prayed. And can I tell you what God did? I have yet to have one of them tell me, no, Mike, please don't. Never. They don't even respond. They're like, you're, you're going to tell me, right? They're wanting you to tell them because there's something in their heart that wants this type of relationship with God. They just don't know how and they're lost and they've heard, you know, the, the church is filled with hypocrites or whatever excuse they give. And it's not according to the word of God. And we have attendance. We have an opportunity. Now, let me tell you some of my life stories as I have sought feebly at times. But when I've opened that door by humbling myself to God, let me tell you what God did. Let me tell you how he rushed in in my life situation. And as we are planting these seeds, God is trying to lift up his church. And when we have these opportunities, these what I'll call platforms, 
And that is what God did with Daniel, by the way. When Daniel had been lifted up, when you are lifted up, and people are now listening to you, they will want to hear the gospel. They will want to hear it. When they see the love of Jesus in you and you're constantly asking them, how can I pray for you? Eventually, a time is going to come in which God is bringing his redemptive judgment into their life, trying to get their attention. And the day you ask them that, their hearts will be broken and they will say, yes, here's what you can pray for me. And then they're going to ask you, have you ever faced something like this? Look what you do. And now you have the opportunity to tell them about Jesus. Because that's where this all goes back to, church. Your life, everything that you are from beginning to end, it is all about Jesus. It is all about him. In John 12, verse 30, I'm going I'm to close with this as we move into communion here. Jesus uses the term now. He's talking to his disciples. It is just before Passover week. And he says in chapter 12, verse 31, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Now, judgment. And I'm just going to tell you this. The cross was that judgment. It didn't just bring salvation. Now follow me here. When you hear or when you first heard that God Almighty stepped down from his glory in heaven and he died for your sin, what was the first thought that came to your mind? Is my sin really that bad? Right? Is my, is my sin really? That, that God had to die from what? I mean, come on, I, I may have lied a little bit, and I remember cheating on that uh, history. Wow, I shouldn't have, but I, okay. I mean, that's no big deal. The teacher didn't find out. Nobody found out about it, and it was just a little cheat. It's not like it changed the course of my life. I did get an A in that class. Oh, I'm so grateful. But, you know, what's the big deal, okay? It was just a little sin. Well, guess what? Jesus died for that sin. The Son of God died for that sin. It cost him. Your sin, that sin, cost him his very life. And you see, when, when you become aware that even these, what I'm seeing as a little sin, that Jesus had to die for that sin and give up his life for that sin, I am now impacted. Wow. How horrible my sin truly must be that God had to die for that. For that lie? For that cheating? And now I am brought to this place where I truly see the horror of my sin. Because the cross brings judgment 
And it convicts me as an unbeliever. It convicts me of my sin and just how horrendous it truly is. You cannot be saved apart from understanding the horror of your sin. Otherwise, you have no desire to be rescued from it. And then Jesus says, for this reason, I will be lifted up and draw all men to me. That is the story you want to share. The story of God's love. The cross in our life. Can you stand with me? Kim, could you fill the lights? Father, we are greatly humbled before your truth. Before the truth of the cross. That Jesus, you would be willing to pay the highest price because you had to for what I perceive as my little sin. God, impress upon this world the depth of the horror of our sin. God, I fear we just don't get it. We do not get it. The cross that offers salvation has to first start with opening my eyes to how very sinful my Curtis is. Father, I just ask you would you please, please show us how we are to live with this humbled attitude before you and this lifestyle of constantly moment by moment relying upon you. God, maybe, maybe it's like I'm speaking a foreign language for some of us. We don't know what that's like. And so I'm just asking you, Father, would you give us the revelation of that? What that life is like that is truly humbled and devoted to Christ.